you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 6th. Today, complications with small business loans, how local leaders were left in the dark on COVID, and the reality beyond Tiger King. This crisis has affected small businesses, and particularly storefronts, services, and the U.S. service-based economy in a way that no other economic crisis has uh, that anyone can remember. Small businesses across America are really responsible for about half of the private sector employment in the United States. That is massive. That is just so many millions of people whose jobs are at risk here. These businesses really are desperate for any sort of bridge that will get them across this gap. My name is Aaron Gregg. I cover business issues for The Washington Post. So the federal government has already approved about $350 billion in the form of small business loans. And so what they want to do is basically give these businesses a way to pay their employees even when they're not making any money for the business. Basically by saying, we'll give you a loan, and if you can keep people on staff, you won't have to pay it back at all. It would be sort of like taking out a student loan and then finding 10 years down the road that if you've paid your bills and you've been a good citizen, you suddenly see all your debt wiped away. It really is sort of a lifeline for all of these community businesses all over the country. And who can qualify? Like what kinds of small businesses? So they've defined it extremely broadly. It's not only small businesses, but it's also nonprofits. Churches can get it. If there's a a community church that loses a bunch of money because they don't get donations that month, they could theoretically get a loan. Sole proprietors, independent contractors. If you're an Uber driver and you have your own separate business to basically organize, you know, Lyft and Uber payments, you could get a small loan here. This really uh, is set up to help just a more broad swath of the U.S. economy than uh, maybe any other bailout plan in the history of the United States. And if it really is that that basically every small business, independent contractor, all different kinds of people could be applying for these loans right now, how exactly does that work? Like, is the Small Business Administration just like inundated with applications right now? Or what is the mechanism for having all these people apply and eventually receive money? So the Small Business Administration is really one of the smallest federal agencies. They compared to the Defense Department or the State Department or even, you know, a, a mid-sized federal agency like, you know, the Education Department, they really have a skeleton staff. Basically, they their main role is to support community banks around America. In a typical year, one where there's not an economic crisis, the job of the Small Business Administration is to underwrite 
these small business loans that already happen. And in the case of a disaster like a hurricane, to basically swoop in afterward and say, we'll give you a disaster loan so that you can get on your feet. That's what they're used to dealing with is a small geographically contained disaster where a lot of people all at once in a small area need money. They're good at that. They know how to scramble for that. This is completely different. This is happening everywhere all at once. And it's just a challenge that no agency in the United States government has ever dealt with before, much less one of the smallest. So they've basically gone to the banks, all the banks of America, and said, okay, you guys have the expertise in evaluating loans and in checking to make sure that everything goes the right way. So they've effectively outsourced this to all the banks of America. The problem is that there's really no evaluation on the front end. They've empowered these banks to basically take people at their word in terms of their eligibility. So I I think it's likely that you'll see a lot of fraud, but also a lot of people who really need the money who are able to get it by moving this quickly. Because the idea is that they just don't have enough time to do thorough vetting or to go back and ask more questions about all of these applications that they're basically just trying to say yes as quickly as possible to get as much money as possible out into people's hands. That's right. They just want to pump money into the American economy as quickly as possible and worry about all the questions of oversight and designing it the right way. They really want to worry about all that later. So the application process opened officially on Friday. How has it been going so far? So they really just pushed this thing out the door as quickly as they possibly could without even too much of a plan in place for how they were going to do it. Thursday night around 8 p.m., that was when the first regulation for this came out. Usually when you have a big program, much less one of this scale, you take months and months and months to figure out how it's going to be run. You have very specific rules for who applies, how to count specific things, what to do when things go wrong. All of that goes into this scripted regulatory process that we have in every industry in the United States. That has not happened here. In this case, The extent of regulation that they did was they posted one 30-page regulatory document on Thursday night when all the banks were supposed to comply with it hours after it was posted online. So what you found Friday is that the banks were looking around, literally seeing the rules for the first time. The banks were really just saying, we don't know what to do here. Most of them basically said, we're just going to hold off. Uh, We're not giving any loans on this until we know what we're doing. And when you say that the banks themselves say that they don't really know what they're doing or that they haven't had enough guidance on how exactly to execute on all these loans, what are the kinds of information that they're missing? Or like, what are the what are the things that they're worried about in this process, worried about getting wrong? So there's a couple angles to this. The first side is that the banks are worried about fraud. They don't want to be the ones to hand out billions of dollars in taxpayer-funded money to a fraudster and then get blamed for it down the line. That is the main thing that they're worried about. There is almost no vetting. There's basically a two-page form where you don't even have to audit. There's no real you know, audit to see, are you the type of person or the type of business who should be getting this? Also, they're, you know, they're concerned about profit. These are private sector organizations. The interest rate for these loans is extremely low. It, it was initially supposed to be 0.5%. They only raised it to 1% because the banking lobbyists complained. 
So it sounds like this has really been a mess for the banks who are trying to help get this money out to people, but also for business owners. I mean, the whole idea of this is that this is money that needs to get out fast, that people have an urgent and pressing need to just be able to pay their bills for last month, for this month. How are business owners navigating this or have they had issues in trying to apply for these loans? They have. So one of the ways that banks are dealing with this uncertainty is they're limiting the applications at the outset. It's actually questionably legal. What we had Friday is that Bank of America sort of made the decision that they're only going to give loans not only to people that are Bank of America customers and have a business bank account, but have already taken loans from Bank of America. What I'm hearing from small businesses all over America, to some extent, there's a lot of anger about that, where they're saying, okay, the big bankers are slow walking this program that we desperately need. They should be supporting us. We bailed them out in 2008. Uh, Where are they now when we need them? So there's a lot of small businesses out there that are just desperately seeking information about how they can get a loan. They're told by Steven Mnuchin uh, that billions of dollars are flowing into their doors, but they don't see it. They're just trying to get a loan. I can also imagine that for very small businesses like mom and pop shops, that if you don't have a lawyer or an accountant on staff or someone who knows how to navigate this process and knows how to advocate on behalf of a business like this, or if you don't have an established relationship with a bank, that it's that much harder that the businesses that are potentially most vulnerable are the ones that won't really know the avenues for hearing about, you know, which bank they should be applying to or how exactly to frame their application so it gets through as quickly as possible. That's right. The other day I spoke to a proprietor of a florist shop in California that has been open for several decades. My name is Margie Moriner and I'm the owner of the Westwood Flower Garden in Los Angeles, California. It's been open since 1977. It's seven days a week from eight in the morning till eight at night usually, except for Sunday, it's from 10 to six. In this case, the daughter of the person who owns the business is actually a lawyer, but she's still looking for basically answers to simple questions about how to get a loan. I think in a way, the application itself seemed very simple. It took, I don't know, less than maybe 15 minutes to enter in the information. And it was fairly quick, but it didn't have a lot of explanation in it. There were, there were definitely things that were vague about what constitutes your monthly payroll, what might make you ineligible, what aspects of the loan will be forgiven, because that's a huge thing here is even though the interest rate is low, you know, nobody want, wants to be taking out a huge loan, you know, to have to pay back. I mean, my mom is 72 years old, you know, it's not like anybody wants to be saddled with additional debt. We could not figure out whether or not my mom should include part-time employees and what happens if employees who had to be laid off applied for unemployment um, coverage through the state. This legislation took a while for the Senate to hammer out. And so, you know, during that time, while we're all waiting to figure out what is going to be available for small businesses, of course, employees had to apply 
for unemployment insurance because they have to. This is a business that has been operating successfully for quite some time. And um, what we're seeing here is that they've had to pretty much shut down. We've never had to close. You know, we just in 2008 during the recession, it was uh, tough to keep everybody going and everything when it was the business was really slow for a couple of years. But um, but we managed. <laughs> we did it. And then things came back. So if all of these people are applying at the same time for these loans, is there an order of who gets first priority of actually receiving this money? And then what happens if theoretically it runs out before everyone who needs a loan gets one? So this is basically being done on a first come, first serve basis. So everyone is pretty much rushing to their bank and saying, where do I stand in line? And the banks don't quite have answers for them. But there is a serious concern that the money will run out uh, very soon. We have $349 billion allocated for this. It sounds like a lot of money. But when you just look at the massive scale of small businesses in America, think every small town everywhere and all of the businesses that are there doing their thing, they would potentially be asking for one of these loans. You could see that money going very, very quickly. I think there's a serious concern here about whether the people that really need this funding are going to get it in time to save their businesses. You're going to see tremendous inequality in how this is dispersed. You're going to see businesses that already have a lot of money get massive bailouts. You're going to see people that really need it either not get it or by the time they get it, it's too late. Uh, I really think this gets at sort of the haves and the have-nots of the, the bailout here. It's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with for, for quite some time about how this particular point in history maybe even influences inequality in America moving forward for decades. Aaron Gregg is a business reporter for The Post. coronavirus outbreak began spreading in the U.S., many state and local officials were scrambling to figure out how to prepare. But they weren't getting much guidance from the federal government. What's emerged since then is a patchwork of emergency plans, differing from state to state and from city to city. And local officials say that the absence of consistent direction from federal agencies in the early days of the outbreak has had serious ramifications. So we talked to 33 emergency management professionals, local officials, people all across the United States to see, you know, when did they really start thinking that this was something that was going to hit their community hard? Nicole Dunka is an investigative reporter. She's been trying to reconstruct the experience of these local officials from the last three months. What we found with many officials was that they were preparing for this in January. They're preparing for this in February as they were seeing news reports coming out of China and coming out of Italy. We were in a meeting and they mentioned something about this coronavirus. You know, and then when I came back from the meeting, well, I have one of my guys start kind of keeping track of what's coming out of China on it. So my colleague Jen Abelson talked to Kyle Coleman. He was an emergency management coordinator there in Texas, where San Antonio is. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we 
started looking at it, and I looked in the warehouse, and we had like three pallets, those hand sanitizers. So, you know, at this point in mid-January, he's kind of looking at everything, trying to see, you know, do we have the personal protective equipment that we all hear about now? Do we have the masks? Do we have the hazmat suits and gloves? Do we have all the hand sanitizer? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking, well, we're in pretty good shape. And by that point, was he getting any guidance from the federal government on, you know, we're keeping watch on this thing in China? Like, here's what you need to have. Here's here are the things that you need to check off your list. At that point, I think a lot of the guidance was, you know, make sure people wash their hands, treat it a little like the flu. But for many of these emergency management professionals, I don't think they felt like they were hearing very clear guidance about, you know, how exactly they were to prepare for something like this to come. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services. On January 31st, we get one of the big messages from the federal government. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. In accordance with the declaration, the United States government will implement temporary measures to increase our abilities. And the president announcing strict travel restrictions. Any U.S. citizen returning to the United States who has been in Hubei province in the previous 14 days will be subject to up to 14 days of mandatory quarantine. So what we found when we talked to several local officials was that they felt like they were caught very off guard. We immediately had a laundry list of questions about what implementation of that really was going to look like at the local level. I talked to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She felt like there was no plan or no thought. We were asking, okay, so you put out this directive that says mandatory 14 days. What does that look like? So hypothetically, and I asked this question, somebody comes from Hubei province and they're asymptomatic. What if they say, no, I'm fine, I'm not going to, I'm good, I'm, I'm going on to my, my final destination. What authority do we have to force somebody into mandatory quarantining? Quarantining where? Right. What location? Under who's right. directed? Who's going to pay for the resources that are going to be necessary to operationalize these things? So very basic questions that we needed to understand the answers to and what our role is going to play had not been thought out at all. She felt like there was very little guidance and that she was getting a lot of the information almost instantaneously from the media when she was also hearing it from her team. So I then started reaching out to other mayors from all the other cities that were affected. And Mm -hmm. then what became clear is not only were we in Chicago hearing different things depending what federal partner we talked to, those same federal partners were telling cities different things. What sort of measures were local officials starting to take at that time? So throughout February, officials are basically just on high alert in many of these cities. Places like San Francisco are getting very concerned. But it was the moment when I was looking at the curves. The public health director of San Francisco, Grant Colfax, is looking at these curves that we all talk about now that show how many cases have popped up in various regions. It became apparent that no jurisdiction where the virus was being introduced was sort of in retrospect thinking, oh, we overreacted. He and other local officials go to Mayor London Breed's office and 
they show some of these curves, some of these graphs of all the cases across the world. And they basically say that they have to get ready. They have to get out in front of this and they have to declare a state of emergency. Today, I'm proactively taking a step to strengthen our preparedness for what may come by declaring a local emergency for coronavirus. You know, part of it was we will hear thinking about, like, man, this is going to really have an impact on our city. It's going to have a significant impact on our economy. People are going to, you know, honestly, people are going to freak out. She said, you know, in her mind, the first response was, whoa, do we really have to go that far? But she felt like she had to do that so that they could be prepared and protect the city. I felt like I had no choice but to put our public health of the city before anything else. And in some ways, it it seems like it might have been a move to kind of force the state or federal government's hand. And once a city declares a state of emergency, that that means that they are supposed to receive aid and help. And so even if the federal government at that time wasn't publicly taking this as seriously as it seems like a lot of these mayors were, that this was a way to make them need to step in in some ways. Yeah, I think from a lot of perspectives, these officials were saying we just had to step up on our own. We had to do what was best for our city and we couldn't worry about what the federal government was doing at that moment. I mean, I know it sounds dramatic, but in this case, it also happens to be true. Every hour counts. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the guidance and the information that we need from the from the federal side, we do everything we can to solve it at the local level. For me and for Chicago, mm-hmm. I, I told my folks we can't burn bandwidth hoping that the federal government is going to come rescue us. They're not going to. We need to take care of our business ourselves in Chicago. So it feels like we're at a moment right now where we are all kind of looking back and thinking about what could have gone differently or how could we have gotten better prepared? You know, could people or should people have been sheltering in place earlier on or social distancing earlier on? Should there have been more preparation for how to get masks and protective equipment out to hospitals and to people who really need them? And and I'm wondering, when you talk to these local officials, did you get the sense from them that they think part of that was because of this lack of clear guidance or communication with the federal government? Yeah, I think you see when you talk to a lot of these officials, that they were pleading for guidance. They were pleading for more clear directions, partly because of what you were saying, that there would be the opportunity to shelter in place or to cancel more large gatherings. I mean, when you think about New Orleans went ahead with a Mardi Gras parade in late February, and the mayor actually said on a CNN interview that she did that because the federal government didn't tell them not to do that. When it's not taken seriously at the federal level, it's very difficult uh, to transcend down to the local level in making these decisions. In hindsight, if we were given clear direction, we would not have had Mardi Gras and I would have been the leader to cancel. And I also think that it's just so much more difficult for 
city and and local officials to make some of these decisions that are very hard political decisions. That if you decide to close down all the restaurants in your city, like, you know, the owners of these restaurants, these are people that you have personal relationships with, and that doing something to hurt them seems like a much harder decision than it would be for someone in the federal government. Or I'm even thinking of the idea of canceling Mardi Gras. If you're the mayor of New Orleans and you're the one who cancels Mardi Gras, that would be a really difficult bullet to take. And in some ways, the federal government is much better poised to step in and say, look, you can't hold it. We're telling you this needs to stop. And then city or state officials can just kind of execute that. So it feels like the federal government in some in some cases is leaving the toughest decisions to the people who are not in the best position to make them. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways, there are definitely people who would argue that some of these local decisions should really be left to these local officials. But they are very difficult, heart-wrenching decisions for some of these communities. I think the idea that there's just a hodgepodge of different responses can be fairly chaotic at a time when you really need to have a lot of control to help prevent the spread of a highly infectious disease. You see some communities next to each other might not have the same restrictions. And so in some ways, you know, one community that is sheltering in place may not be as well protected if the community next to them isn't following the same order. So you have a lot of real consequences that happen with something like this Because in many ways, you know, the earlier you're prepared for it, the more lives are saved. All you have to do is look at New York every day. The the apocalyptic conditions in New York are are the potential future of the rest of the country. Nicole Dunka is an investigative reporter for The Post. And now one more thing. If you are self-isolating at home, spending time perusing Netflix, you may have come across a new show that's getting a lot of attention, a seven-part totally bonkers documentary series called Tiger King. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. Y'all got a story to tell. But national reporter Karen Bouliard says the captive tiger industry is an even bigger problem than what you see in the TV show. Joe Exotic, now famous as the Tiger King, came across our radar pretty quickly. And he seemed to be a really good vehicle for us to tell the story of tigers, captive tigers in the United States. There are tigers in elite zoos, the zoos you might think of as good zoos. Uh, The National Zoo here in Washington has a couple tigers. But then there's also lots and lots of other tigers in 
other kinds of facilities. A lot of people would call some of them roadside zoos. Some places are sanctuaries. Circuses have tigers. And then there are people who have tigers as pets. Shot here with my main man, Joe. And Joe just gave me this tiger for a present. <laughs> a lot of states have passed laws prohibiting the keeping of exotic animals as pets, particularly big cats as pets. But those laws have a lot of exemptions. So people who had tigers, say, before the law was passed were allowed to keep their tigers. They have a heart and a soul and a mind. I've learned from them. And then even with those laws in place, tracking tigers, big cats, and the trade in these animals has just not really been a federal priority. Based on records we got from USDA, we found, you know, something like 1,300, 1,400 tigers on the books through USDA. People can disagree about whether it's right or wrong to keep animals in captivity, whether it's right or wrong to have tigers in this country that, you know, were born here and are never going to be wild. To me, what I think is really striking about what we found in this is that we just don't know how many there are. And that alone to me is a somewhat shocking fact. I mean, these are potentially very dangerous animals. And the fact that the government and, and states don't know where they are and don't bother to sort of try to understand where they are is, is remarkable to me. Karin Brouillard writes about animals for the National Desk at The Post. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Last week, we asked listeners for bright spots. Despite all the sad and scary news, we wanted to know the things that are making you smile. We got one note from a listener in New Zealand about a tradition that started there during social distancing. Hi, my name is James Stevenson, and I live in Auckland, New Zealand. Our country went into a national lockdown on March the 26th for a period of at least four weeks, although many expect this will be extended. Until this time, we have not suffered as many other countries have, but we do still have kids at home going a little stir-crazy, and we're starting to feel the isolation of social distancing. One woman has started a national campaign for all New Zealanders to put teddy bears in windows, letterboxes, even trees, so when families do go out for a walk, their kids can engage in a teddy bear hunt. The response across the country has been amazing, so much so that even our Prime Minister has got in on it. Our current family record is 83 bears in a 20-minute walk. I think New Zealanders are pretty low-key in our interactions with each other, but it's been heartening to see that at a time where we have to physically isolate ourselves from each other, we can reach across that divide through the power of teddy bears. If you've noticed something that's giving you hope or making you laugh, we want to hear about it. Email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.